0: Today's episode is more long-form than previous episodes, and so I've actually broken this into two parts. Today's episode, I speak with the first monster I confronted, while part two, the next episode, I lovingly confront another monster and make a surprising discovery in the process. So stay tuned for that next episode to drop. Without further ado, I give you Learning to Love Your Monster, part one. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm going to be joined by my very own monster, Chelsea Gonmark. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And first I'm going to go into my story of what it meant to learn to love monsters and how that evolved over time. And specifically the the loving of the monster I'm going to delve into with my very own monsters. We're going to dialogue through that. But first I want to share that When I was growing up, I was really afraid of these overachievers in my life. I would see them from a distance and see the popular girls or popular guys and say, wow, you must have it all together, or your parents have a lot of resources. It must be great to be a star athlete. It must be great to be well-dressed, etc. And so I was always afraid of those kids. I thought that I couldn't interact with them. Did you ever feel that way, Chelsea?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I felt
0: like, at least from my
1: point of view... Especially because I grew up um, without a lot of privilege mm-hmm. and um, without a lot of that scaffolding that some of these other children had, whether mm-hmm. it be financial or support or what have you. But I always felt that like education was the great equalizer. Sure. And that as long as I learned enough, I could mimic what, what they I had wanted to be. Or, okay. What Absolutely. You whether it was within fashion, whether it was within... Um, decorum, manners, however they held themselves, Mm -hmm. I could affect that same look to Mm -hmm. be like, oh, no, no, look, I'm one of you. I'm not actually where I came from. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and that brings me to my next point of mimicking monsters. So I used to be afraid of those monsters. I'd keep them at arm's length, and then I'd try to copycat them. If she was popular, I would try to talk the way that she talked, or i tried to be charming the way that she was. And that became really exhausting as I tried to basically become the highlights of everyone else. You really lose yourself in the process. Absolutely. I think
1: that kind of chameleon mm-hmm. is one of those things that becomes, like, not only exhausting, but you do lose your sense of self. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, you're kind of left wondering, like, well, who am I really? Mm-hmm. Is Am I all of these things that I'm affecting in a social circumstance or what am I exactly whether it be is it something that I've been reading Mm -hmm. is it something that I've been mimicking is it something um, that I heard somebody else say and now I'm doing it as well I do think it is really difficult to discern um exactly what is you versus what you've been seeing Mm -hmm. versus what you've been taught and trying to navigate that environment
0: And so then with that, I guess the third part of my story is learning to love monsters, which is where I think you play a key role in that process in my life, as there had been dozens of monsters that, I mean, I still feared because they were, you know, killer product managers or they were killer tech founders and they had millions of dollars, whatever that might be. And let's bring the audience up to speed with our story. So we met over, well, fencing. You had joined the adult class and uh, share with me your first impressions. Okay. That's so great because yeah,
1: I had been gifted, um, a trial membership Mm -hmm. in fencing and it had always been something that appealed to me. In fact, I had wanted to try it in college Mm -hmm. and my college roommate had tried to start a club on campus because she had done a part of her fencing club in high school. However, it didn't work out at our school, whether it was enough interest or what mm-hmm. have you, it just never came to be. And sure. so I never did it. But um, then I was gifted this gift membership, and I remember being really intimidating the night I went uh, for my first session, because mm-hmm. you walk into this basement, everybody seems to already know what they're doing. Sure. You remember the setup of the welcome desk. It's very far away from like where you walk
0: in. Very backwards.
1: <laughs> and so I was really just kind of thrown by the whole thing and um I had kind of zeroed in on some of the people that were seemed really kind and of course our mutual friend now, Jamie Mm -hmm. and I um As we had gone through a couple of the initial classes, we had seen you fence Uh (laughs) and it was funny because we had identified you and we had seen that nice little British logo on your fencing gear and you're like, oh, we got to find out who she is. She's definitely wearing legit gear because this is not American gear, this is... British. Yeah, exactly. And so so we were like, oh wow, she's got like the really sexy outfit. We really want to know who she is. And so Jamie and I had hatched like this plan that we would get (laughs) to week four and then we would approach you. And I remember that is so awkward. (laughs) I remember that we had we had gotten this ready and You know, we were just about to get kicked out of the nest and we didn't really want to because we had been really enjoying our class. In the beginner's class. Exactly. We loved our teacher. We loved our group. And it was really intimidating to move into the intermediate adult class. With a very different teaching style. Oh, very much so. And we could even see that before we had gotten into Mm -hmm. it. And it just seemed so overwhelmingly um, intimidating and you know we were loving this sport mm-hmm. and we were just so um I think brought into such a like a gentle and very um technique centric mm-hmm. teaching style and then we see like this kind of very different much more open teaching style mm-hmm. and and all these other people and it was one of those things where you want to know that you're ready for it but at the same time kind of that self-doubt kind of comes in. Sure. But you know but you're also like super eager and you know you don't want to leave the familiar. But we had we had seen you and mm-hmm. so we had decided that yes this is a person that we need to befriend because clearly she's got the gear, she's got the knowledge, she's already in this class. This is somebody we need to know.
0: <laughs> well and little did I know that Um, you know, wow, (laughs) to see women in fencing was kind of rare. And so that was really exciting. I was like, "Ooh, new friends. (laughs) And then Chelsea introduced herself to me and called out the, you know, the sticker on the patch on my lapel for my fencing jacket and said, oh, I just love London. You had some other, you had another different phrase for that, but (laughs) <laughs> we'll leave that out. Um, and you were just really, really excited about London and all the things English. And so you said, where did I get it? And, and that just started this conversation where I said, well, what keeps you busy? Or what's your story? And you had shared that you have a master's in fine arts, You went to a special school to become a published writer. You were pursuing your degree in medicine. You were pre-med. And so you were going to interview for a school in London. And what else am I missing out? Oh, um, you were on the board of a number of nonprofits. You were helping to sue the UN for bringing malaria to Haiti. Because why not also pick up fencing in your spare time? And I'm like perspiring heavily going like, oh my gosh, I mean, I might have a nice fencing jacket, which was very true. It was 100% accurate. Fantastic fencing jacket. (laughs) I was like, but I'm not on the board of multiple nonprofits. I don't have my master's. I'm not pre-med. I'm not going to go to... And and so, (laughs) and then with two kids and just all these fancy things. And I then later shared that it was my dream to have a Burberry trench coat. And I said, you know, one day I'm going to have myself a Burberry trench coat. Because it was this personal milestone absolutely. for, for just my life, and I had wanted one since high school, to which Chelsea quickly responded and said, "Well, I actually I, I have five. <laughs> and I was like, "Um," <laughs> so uh, gracious of that. <laughs> but uh, so she had five, five, one, two, three, four, five of my life dreams in her closet, and so in that I moment, have ten years on you. absolutely, you do you have more life on me. Um, but in that moment I went, oh my goodness, she might be new to fencing, but monster, monster alert, monster alert. And that's so, it's fun to say now because we've come so far in our friendship, but in that moment I was like, oh, fudge muffins. (laughs) I was like, I mean, I had a nice jacket, but, um, here we are. And so. that conversation evolved and it went from just, you know, oh, I like your jacket to learning a little bit more about ourselves. And we then grew into a deeper friendship because we were very committed to fencing. We're also very competitive people, both very type A (laughs) and both very very driven.
1: (laughs) And also, I think it's one of those things where either you can see somebody and say, wow, we share these characteristics, Mm -hmm. I don't understand them. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, wow, we both share these characteristics and I do understand them. And I feel like we fall into the latter category. And it was more of kind of like, at that point, like a mutual admiration. Like we Mm -hmm. continued to push each other harder. Correct. And it was like, wow, we are those kind of people that... Are like oh we're looking for those people that challenge us definitely that keep us on our toes that are not just there to be like oh status quo that's not what we're interested in no and so it was more like what we would play out in fencing would certainly play out in would mimic in life. our lives yes. fencing
0: <laughs> fencing and uh life on the strip oh definitely goodness. imitated life yes and so even when um, fencing while sleep deprived after a overnight <laughs> flight from London, uh, which basically caused a, uh, uh,
1: how, how a, do
0: I say it, drunk sensation? I mean, she was, was not intoxicated, <laughs> but she was sleep deprived. It was so, notorious. So we decided to fence. Why not fence the Why not infamous after? Chelsea while under this... Pseudo intoxication because she was sleep deprived. So sleep deprived. I remember being almost
1: like giddy. Oh, and, I know. And it was.
0: Just, ugly. I remember <laughs> even like Duncan like
1: offering like Do you need a ride home? Mm-hmm. I was like, No, no, I think I got this because I thought I had. Sure. I basically that I got this was my attitude kind of for everything at sure. that point. Mm-hmm. But um, yes. I think our commitment and our dedication, but also when you love something like that, mm-hmm. and and I felt like it was always kind of like this meeting of the minds and an emotional sort of thing. And for me at that time in my life, that was my only emotional outlet. Sure. And we would all come to fencing and you could tell, like mm-hmm. the tenor would shift with people and that dynamic would play itself on out on the strip, and all of us seemed to just reflexively respond to that with each other, mm-hmm. which was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like it. And so it almost became addicting, mm-hmm. where it was like, wow, this is a place where you can actually be yourself. I and could be your best let, self, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could let that full drive come out mm-hmm. and be like, oh, tonight I am going to own the strip. Mm -hmm. And there were other nights when I was like, I know I'm going to be just battered on the strip, but that's what I needed at Mm -hmm. that moment. I needed to be put in my place. I needed to humble myself at that moment. And then there were other moments when I knew that it would be my place to strive or my place to express myself in a different way.
0: And so with that being said, our friendship grew, it evolved, We were very competitive with each other. We still are to this day. Yeah, absolutely. We we fence in our backyard now (laughs) because fencing (laughs) clubs are expensive. Um, Fencing for life. Fencers for life. Parkour (laughs) fencing.
1: (laughs) Parkour.
0: As we got to know each other during different pivot points, as life would evolve and progress and challenges came up for both of us. Oh my gosh, when you made that big move from... um,
1: smart web parts, smart things to, to to, mm -hmm. yeah. And I remember being a part of that transition, knowing that you were applying to that, knowing that you were thinking about leaving, Mm -hmm. knowing what that meant, knowing that you were writing those letters to your colleagues that had been your mentors Mm -hmm. for years Mm -hmm. and wondering, is this the job I make or not? Mm -hmm. And knowing what that would mean for you. I mean, it was all a part of like, we became like this kind of quasi-family that we were like all supporting each other and we knew about these things because we were meeting three times a week Mm -hmm. and we were understanding each other because in that space, we had this different form of expression. Definitely. And so I feel like that really fostered the connection Mm -hmm. in a way that I had never experienced Mm -hmm. before where it was suddenly like, you know, between like you and Jamie, like suddenly we had like this like, Collective little family mm-hmm. where, like, we kind of instantly became protective sure. and like these big ambassadors for each other.
0: Well, and, and letting one another know who not to fence that night because <laughs> Absolutely. not all fencers are created equal, and, yeah. um, not at all. <laughs> and it's for those that are not familiar, fencing is a can be and it's often a co ed sport, mm-hmm. and so women will fence men, and the strength and power behind. A man trying to hit you with a foil, a saber, or an epee is very different and disproportionate to a woman. And also, as you hear us talk about the strip, that's similar to a court and basketball. So the strip is where the action happens and where we have to stay on while we conduct a bout, which is similar to a game. Um, So you might hear those words over the arc of our conversation. But we got to know each other. We then had a lot of life that happened to us and I mean, just like successes and failures across all three of us, mm-hmm. and, we and yeah, we, we shared it. I mean, there were tears. I know oh. I cried many times on the strip. I cried as well. And, and I'm not a crier. Me either. And I'm definitely not a public crier.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, oh my gosh, can I just like resoundingly um, say yes to both of those? <laughs> that not only am I not a crier, but I'm not a public crier. But in those moments, it just seemed I don't know, apropos, that that was the place that we could express the full range of emotion. I have never yelled like I would yell on the strip. I've never laughed like I laughed on the strip. I've never come up behind somebody like I do to you and hit them with a sword
0: in a playful manner. Yes. (laughs) I'd be Uh, like, you know exactly what I mean when I do it. Chelsea likes to stab me in the back literally... (laughs) Well, um, that—that is a thing. That is a real thing in foil fencing, and where you can actually whip the blade so that it bends and it actually hits them in the back. Um, which this is where really saying gives me too much credit. Um, <laughs> too granted, I—I I also can stab you in the back, and it's quite fun. Absolutely. But it is a, it's so, a so this experience. love gets established, and this monster, you know, with the five trench coats. You know, you get to kind of of appreciate you
1: understanding that as a measure of extrinsic success because I too was in that same position.
0: Correct. And to back up, the reason why I love this given um, piece of clothing is, or piece of outerwear, is because I would see it on the arms of women traveling the world as a little girl while traveling with my parents. And they seem to, you know, they'd have their brown leather purse. And then the trench coat over their arm. And they would just look like they were armed and ready to travel the world. And I just vowed to myself that one day I too would be armed with a trench coat, a brown purse, um, and that would be my uniform to go and take on life. So that that's the backstory of the trench coat and why I love it so much. And so, yes, in summary, this is a five trench coat person, and I'm. but the, yet this love is developing as we develop vulnerability. We're crying on the strip with one another about, you know, life's challenges or the loss of a friend's child and all that comes with that. I mean, just really heavy, true life stuff. And what you learn as the, that love and compassion develops, you start to see some of the layers peel away from that monster facade and I got to see Chelsea Gonmark, the person, not Chelsea Gonmark. She has five coats. And that was the most beautiful thing. So then I thought to myself, well, what if I did this with all my monsters? What if I told them they were my monster, that I loved, adored them, looked up to them? BT Dubs, I think you're a monster. And then um, just like, I mean, revealed that. And so I went person to person. Did we have that conversation formally? What did that look like? You did. you remind my like, refresh my memory?
1: You know, I remember you talking about your monsters. And I remember you talking about them with so much admiration. Sure. And I had remembered thinking in my head, it was like, oh, I love this as an idea. You know, that here is this word. And words have power. Mm-hmm. And to me, especially with, like, my background. In writing? In, yeah, like... I loved that here you were setting meaning upon this word and monsters so perfect, right? Monsters are supposed to be things that we're scared of. Mm-hmm. But like monsters also in mythology encompass so much power. And so to me, I loved that you decided, you know, it's kind of like that child under the bed, right? You have to make this choice at some point. like, do I believe in you? Do I identify with you? Am I scared of you? And here you decided, you're like, no, the thing that I fear is the thing that I love. And I am giving this to you as a gift. And I remember you calling me a monster. And I remember thinking at first, like, what a jerk. I, I, I was like, wow, is that bad? Because I was like, oh, you know what? I know I can come off as intimidating. And at that point in my emotional journey, mm-hmm. that could have been very after Sure. <laughs> Obviously, I've changed mm-hmm. since then. Yeah. But at that point, you know, it it would have been probably okay to say so. Because mm-hmm. at that point, you know, I think like as we particularly as women Mm -hmm. as we have to like juggle all of these different identities Mm -hmm. and what that means to like hold power and to have power. There was something that I knew that with like, there was an intimidation factor that was powerful, Mm -hmm. but that's also alienating and it's not something where like the supposition of like how I would like to base friendships off of would have, um, had Genesis in and, um, where even where I was then when we met is very different than who I am now. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a lot of personal growth since then and a lot of emotional intelligence that has come into play in my intrinsic life versus my extrinsic life. Mm -hmm. But I can look back at that time and there was like this kind of mixture of like, yeah, okay, I'm glad you know like I I understand what she's saying and I'm actually like really honored by this and then there's also part of me where I was like as I was kind of already kind of transitioning a little bit in my life being like oh no am I overdoing it and I think unfortunately for women um, where I would have never said this before Mm -hmm. because it would have been too mainstream maybe for me to even say or to come to or just like where I felt and I didn't want to have anything, any scaffolding to, like, get me to where I was. You know, mm-hmm. to be like, oh, well, I'm a woman, so then I can say this. So um, there was kind of part of me that, you know, liked the idea of, like, holding some kind of power without, um, without any scaffolding from something else. But at the same time, also kind of being like, oh, wow, I actually am kind of, like, fighting this internal battle because... I actually don't do feel believe. like a monster. Yeah, I don't feel like a monster, and also I kind of, you know, I'm a sailor, and I believe very much in the the wave raises all ships. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing well, why can't all of us be doing well? Sure. There isn't some mutually exclusive event that makes me do well and you do bad because that wouldn't make me happy and that kind of mode of thinking has always been foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never been a very jealous person and I've never been somebody that has thought that you know whether somebody is beautiful or intelligent or smart or funny that that would somehow diminish from any of my quality and I actually feel like right now More than ever, I feel like a lot of women are kind of coming into this phase where there isn't this um, animosity or this kind of jealousy or competitive living where it's more like, oh, we can honor each other's traits and have that not take away from who we are. Because that would really be silly, right? Like if I'm to compliment you and say, well, Kelsey, you're so confident and amazing to me. It doesn't mean that I'm not confident. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be silly to say so otherwise or to resent you or to like feel bad because I admire this quality in you. But quite frankly, I, I would rather surround myself with amazing women to be mm-hmm. like, look at this is my squad.
0: you well, we that's awesome. The value of learning <laughs> to love your monsters. Because Absolutely. if you surround yourself with people that are living life well, mm-hmm. you know, it is the tide that raises all ships Mm -hmm. is I think your phrase that, um, you called out. And so when it comes to, if you think of, if you evaluate yourself as a monster, would you say that you were doing that for external, like, was it self-driven or do you think that much of it was simply a facade because of like your resume? Like you have a very impressive resume, therefore people can draw that conclusion of like anything Chelsea does, she's amazing at. Or do you think that that's just something that you've always been self-motivated and therefore you do hard things?
1: Oh, that's such a great question.
0: And um, I think it kind of feeds back into you. Like, you know, like when you first called me a monster,
1: and I, and I had this like a <laughs> mixture of like wow that's amazing mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm being co- counted in her ranks of this um, that's really great because uh, you know again we had kind of this mutual admiration of each other and um, for me I would say it's a bit of Is it a mix I, I would I would definitely say it's a mix because I've had to kind of go through that kind of fraudulent experience where I felt had, like a fraud or yeah where I had a lot of self-doubt sure you know like wow well if she really got to know me she would realize that I'm not any of these names. I'm not fancy mm-hmm. yeah exactly oh she would not know and then there's this other part of me that is very self-driven I mean I think about when I was studying for med school mm-hmm. I was studying from 6am. to midnight mm-hmm. and that was all self-driven There was no, there's no external measure of success of that, right? I mean, maybe a good MCAT score, maybe getting into a medical school, yes, but at the same time, there's nobody sitting there being like, Chelsea, you need to study. You need to study neurology today and you need to study biochemistry today or what have you. I needed to sit and I knew what I needed to do and I had to schedule that out on my own. It was very self-motivated. Where my self-motivation comes from Is I remember when I was a really young child, Now I grew up very impoverished. I know what it's like to not eat. I know what it's like to be scared of where I live. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to see a parent struggle with, like, do I buy food or do I buy rent? Mm -hmm. You know, in a very real way. Now, I could go into a million things about Mm -hmm. boundaries and about, like, what I should have been exposed to or not. But the fact of the matter is that's what I was exposed to. That was your life. Absolutely. And so I remember when my mother took me to where she worked, I was very young. Um, She worked in a motor factory for Toro and she brought me into the factory where she worked and she said, you're too smart for this. Do you smell this? And I could smell the varnish. And I looked down at her fingers, which were wrapped in tape Mm -hmm. to protect her hands from the motors Mm -hmm. that she was assembling. And she says, if you don't study this is where you'll end up. And to this day, When I smell varnish, Mm -hmm. I get sick to my stomach. I nearly vomit. Like, that's how visceral it was to me. And because she knew what my potential was, she knew that I had, like, a scholastic aptitude that Mm -hmm. um, overrode my social position. She wanted to let me know, like, hey, I am doing this. I am making these sacrifices for you. Do with it what you can. Mm -hmm. right? And so I studied very hard and that was very intrinsic. My friends were going out getting drunk or doing whatever in high school. I was Hermione Granger. Like Mm -hmm. I studied nonstop. That was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I studied until I got into a private school because I knew that that would help me, Mm -hmm. you know, all these kinds of things that environmentally, you know, I studied how to not be me basically. Hmm. So there was part of me that like because of like boundary issues or what have you that I ran from at probably an acceleration that was disproportionate to what it needed to be in terms of like honoring where I came from or like not having it be so traumatic Mm -hmm. because there is a way to come from poverty and to move into success without it being traumatic. But I was exposed to things that were traumatic. So to me, my reflexive behaviors came from that was a little bit more skewed than maybe that what should have been and so my drive to push myself was even stronger and i would say almost bordering on obsessive no matter what i did i had to be the best at it you know i had to anything that was a shade of who i had been was something that i would discard you know like it was more like oh this is a piece of me that I don't like, I am so averse to it. Whereas now I have relaxed on that. You're more comfortable. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Where it's more like having traveled and lived all over the world and coming out of like the Americanism of like, what's the first thing that people ask after your name? What do you do? Mm -hmm. As if that is your value. Mm -hmm. And people make so many assumptions based off of your Your answer to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I knew that before. And there was this kind of like needy, external like, mm-hmm. "Let me tell you all the things that I've done. This makes me worthy. This makes me yeah. valued. This makes me worthy of love, or mm-hmm. what have you." Um, when I would travel, and when I'd be living in like, say, London or South Africa or where ha- wherever it was, hashtag people, <laughs> people would ask me not what I did, but what I thought about things. Because that is the difference right there, is no matter where you are, what you're doing, who, who you've become in terms of like your job, that's not who you are. It's how you think and it's how you treat people. That's who you are, right? And so if, there, if you're in a population that values that and asks you that, it's a lot easier to be that. Now I'm not using that as an excuse, but it is harder, I feel, here to do that and there are times when I feel very uh solidified in my intrinsic motivation where I can say yeah this is how I think and feel about things that alone is good enough Mm -hmm. I already know I'm intelligent I already know I'm creative Mm -hmm. I already know that I'm worthy of love and like worthy of being able to comment on this but then there are times when you know it's like oh wow my title no longer matches with The thing who you think you are is absolutely absolutely, and so suddenly, yeah, and so suddenly I'm diminished and by a stranger, Mm -hmm. absolutely, and it is silly and stupid, (laughs) really. Mm -hmm. And then it like, but it makes me feel that way, and I really have to look at the root of that and say, well, that is something that is coming from me, and that insecurity, um, the progenitor of that is me, but. It doesn't mean that it's not hard, right? You can think one thing and you can feel another thing. And the space between those from your head to your heart can be from the earth to the moon. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of distance to travel sometimes.
0: So how do you make that journey happen? So if I were to summarize what I heard you say, it sounded like it started as some level of, of a facade because you wanted to go far, far away from your um, youth and your upbringing of what that was. So you wanted to become the exact opposite of those things. You wanted to become educated. You wanted to have resources available to you. You wanted to have the luxury to travel. Any number of things. And so you wanted to do the exact opposite. How did you make that transition? Or how are you still making that to this day? Yeah. Because I, I want. I think the listener. I think. Um, I think that's super valuable.
1: Absolutely. Um, part of it was what I was doing for myself through education and like through the opportunities I made for myself. I never waited for things to happen. I always made them happen. I almost with like a frenetic desire made things happen. I would pursue all sorts of things with kind of, um, an obsession level, Mm-hmm. That isn't to negate that I'm not interested in multiple things or that I'm not capable of understanding multiple things. Mm -hmm. Um, It was more like escaping from myself at that time. And now when I look back in reflection, Mm -hmm. I can see that. You know, whether it be taking flying lessons or taking fencing or...
0: Or sailing across the largest freshwater race (laughs) in the... North America region, (laughs) yeah, the second, second, second largest uh,
1: freshwater race in the world. There you go, Um, ladies and gentlemen. So (laughs) these kinds of things where I had to like kind of like prove myself, Mm -hmm. and that were also not only mentally taxing but also physically taxing. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I'm the largest person in the world, and so like these things would take a lot of my. Um, physicality or mental acuity or strategy or all these kinds of things that I was like just overwhelmingly trying to prove to the world Mm -hmm. with like this kind of like desire. Now I think for a lot of people they can come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. For me like I definitely have come from a background where my parents expected nothing but perfection and then entered into a relationship with somebody that was also very driven in the same sort of way, where it was like, hey, we have to have all these external measures to Mm -hmm. show and to prove to ourselves over and over again that we are not where we started. But that frenetic desire becomes really exhausting after a a certain point, right? And now I've taken this shift in my life where what do I value the most is actually like real connection with people. Like, are these the people that are kind of like my ride or die sort of people? Will they love me? Faults and all. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a big part of being like a real monster versus not is like, can you still have a fault and use that and incorporate that Mm -hmm. and um, let that part of you show, let that vulnerability show And say, well, this is part of who I am. Because this is really what's driving me at the end of the day, right? I mean, you can have all of these other gifts given to you. But really, I do think it's those vulnerable soft spots that are the most tender and the most difficult to share. And as we've walked around the lakes Mm -hmm. many times together and have talked about like, wow, these are the things that make me so desperately human.
0: so so what was that pivot? Like, let's zoom in, like in terms of, well, uh, what forced you to say, you know, what I've been doing for, you know, three decades, three and a half decades is no longer going to quench the person that I want to become that, Mm -hmm. you know, externally driven versus internally driven. What would you point to that drove you to a place where I said, No more, I need to be, I need to do this because the soft spots matter. I wanna be loved for who I am, not just what's on my LinkedIn profile.
1: No, that's a fantastic question. I think what finally happened was like my separation is um, suddenly I was no longer a part of this, like, power couple Mm -hmm. that had this amazing facade of perfection. Sure. I would agree with that. (laughs) Like, look at us. Like, we are unstoppable. Like, we are both so driven, so perfect. Look at all the things that we've done. That was exhausting. That was really, really hard to uphold because it was such a strong dichotomy from what I was actually feeling sure and when I actually took the time to sit and I remember right after separating and here I'd walked away from great wealth Mm -hmm. from great um, partnering of business life this great support so that I could go and do these other things right but I really realized that a lot of these things that I were doing was escapism because I could not feel comfortable in the life that I was leading, mm. um, not to say that I don't love these things, but I really took it to you know an exponential degree, right? You know, like if I was going to fence, I was going to fence four days a week, and I would be the best fencer in the class.
0: And, and like, you would fly to London and meet, and I would the go, yeah, owner's son <laughs> of the. The jacket that I had when we met, <laughs> she met the grandson or the son of that company and then took a picture and then, of course, sent it to me because I was like,
1: but good night, really... monster of monsters. <laughs> but if you remember, I wouldn't even allow myself to purchase any equipment until I had reached the level in which I've been invited into the composition, competition class. As soon as I got that, then I bought my equipment. Until then, I wore the gross, wet used equipment. Lord only knows. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I just remember coming to the club and putting on equipment and having it still be damp. (laughs) And just being like, oh, this is my hair shirt. This is my this is my prayer to my future self. But you know when when I did separate and I was sitting in not my big house on the lake. Not my not You know, with all of these things, I was sitting in this, like, duplex Mm -hmm. um, that I had picked out and that was within what I thought would be an acceptable range Mm -hmm. of affordability. And I was sitting there and I thought, God, if I was the only person in this world, what would I feel like right now? Would I be happy with the choices that I've made? And at that point, I was feeling like, yeah. I am glad I'm here on my own. I actually love myself for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. I am valuing the choices that I'm making. Here, I've decided to step away from a medical research career, which obviously would have gained me that kind of, you know, that external validation of you are intelligent, you are worthy, you are smart. Like, all of these things that, like, I already knew for myself but like, I needed to have others
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, say, yes, you are, because this is a job that clearly says, yes, you are. And instead here I'm sitting in my home and I am saying, okay, I don't mind if I go and get a job at a restaurant so that I can afford to save some money so I can go and make films so that I can involve my children who are now 10 and eight and say, hey, let's go make a film about South Africa. Let's go do this sort of thing. Like there are many things that I'm passionate about that I would like to bring to light. And I have this like technical knowledge. And then I have this creative knowledge where I could combine them and actually do something with it. That is where I'm not giving up the formative years of my children. Because if I went to medical school at that time, um, I would pretty much be trading their time with me to save the lives of other children. And that was really odd to me because at that time I had been working for mm-hmm. the Sentinel project for pediatric multidrug drug and extreme drug resistant tuberculosis. And I had this like big need to go and help all these other children. And then suddenly I was like, well, I have two children. Like, How that, old are your children? Eight and 10 though. And so to have these people in my charge mm-hmm. It was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I think I need to like reevaluate and have this moment. And actually it was a conversation that you and I had had that I would go back and say it changed my relationship
0: with the children. And it was the well better conversation. And Let's double click on that. What yeah. What was covered in that conversation <laughs> so that maybe our listeners can apply that in their own lives? Absolutely. Which I actually think they should.
1: If there is like one thing that they would get out of this, I would say it would be to make a well better meeting with their also, spouse or
0: children. Comma also learn to love your monsters. That would be and that, that. <laughs> but talk about and well I better. Would say, and
1: I would say to love yourself, right? Yeah, because
0: ultimately this all rests on that.
1: Because actually, before this, I would say it was I was almost fatalistic in my viewpoint of myself and like how I viewed myself in the world. And now I come to myself and say, well, I am valuable. I am lovable. I'm no longer doing those external measures, but the amount of work I've done in my internal life has been so huge in terms of like my emotional Mm -hmm. intelligence, my personal development, um, my meditation life, my prayer life, all of these things are so much richer. My awareness of how I interact in the world with other people is so better Mm -hmm. that I almost look back and like my former interactions and think oh my gosh I can't believe I acted like that or I missed that because I was so focused on so many other things whereas now to take the time so Kelsey introduced me to this like awesome concept and you can totally fil- jump in and say anything you'd like um, about this because you had gotten this from
0: a target executive who's yeah. a friend of mine and He shared his family meeting structure where on Sunday nights, they cross-reference their values um, and priorities. So values first, then priorities are the second row. And then the third row are activities based off of the mission and vision of their family. Sounds very much like a corporate executive for you, but he applied it at the family level. And so they would, use this filter of what their core values were as a means to determine what they would say yes and no to within a given week um, as they would look at their schedule. Everyone else would say what you did well. So Charlie, I really think you were compassionate to your little sister today. You let her have an extra serving of dessert. And then mom says what Charlie did really well. And then the sister says what Charlie did well. And then Charlie, when it's Charlie's turn, Charlie has to take ownership and say, well, here's what I could do better. And so Charlie Charlie has to say, you know what, though? I thank you for saying I was patient, but I really want to grow in patience. Maybe maybe it's the same concept that you did well, but you want to do it even better. You implemented that in your family. And what did that look like?
1: Yeah, so for us, what I loved about that is it took this responsibility of evaluation, which I think can be really detrimental, particularly to a family with younger children. Mm -hmm. It can be really discouraging. And suddenly, it's teaching this value of self-reflection and self-responsibility. And so for us, we kind of tweaked it a little bit to kind of combat some of the emotional uprest that we have had through this transition Mm -hmm. of our family dynamic change because here we have for multiple years have been this really tightly knit family and now suddenly we're going through this transition of being a, a separate family and i was a child i was nine years old when my parents divorced now my children are 10 and 8 and we're going through a separation and so i was really cognizant of the emotional landscape of what they were going through And I wanted to make sure that this was something that we could navigate well together as a family. And I wanted to honor their emotions, but also help guide them and to set an example of letting them know um, from a positive parenting point of view, like what they could do with me, where they could feel safe so that they would have a space where they could have their emotions, where they could feel that they could speak to me in a very frank way. And so it it was like this perfect timing of like employing like these other methods of parenting along with what you said. And so for us, we do it on a Thursday night. I have my children, um, on those nights and it's kind of nice because every other Friday they go to their fathers or they're with me. So, to catch them on a Thursday. We've already had a good chunk of the week. Um, Some of it together, some of it apart. And we're about to go into a weekend, whether together or apart. So for us, it's a perfect meeting point. And what we first do is we go on a silent walk as a family. So we believe in there is no bad weather, just bad weather. And so we go on walk hashtag Minnesota like <laughs> yes. Minnesota yes so we bundle up and we go on a silent walk and I think this is really important because there are so few times where we actually build in and um, honor the value of silence and which is hilarious to anybody that knows me because I'm very pulverous <laughs> I speak a lot um, but there is a real gift in being silent and um, Encountering nature in a silent way, listening, experiencing, smelling, um, touching all these kinds of things. And so we come back in this really contemplative mood. So we've already kind of set the stage, right? So for like uh, about a half an hour, an hour, depending on the weather, we've already like walked around the creek, the lake, what have you. We come back and we sit together and we have a shell that we pass around for who is the speaker to make sure that none of us are interrupting that we are honoring the other so it's me and my two children and the first thing that we do with our well betters is we do go around and we say what each person has done well and then the better part is so great because it does teach that self-reflection and that personal accountability and even i do it which i think is really great and it is humbling and it's good to show my children that i am not and that I can share with them things that are appropriate. Like mm-hmm. I never speak, appropriate Yeah, I never speak ill about any anyone or I never um, use it as some kind of fodder, but it's more like, hey, look, I can show you what I have done wrong and what I would actually like your help on mm-hmm. this week. You know, maybe I say, you know, I would like to have more patience. You know, because what we are ultimately doing is supporting each other in those goals, right? And praising each other for where we've come. And then I then use it as kind of like this open space where combined with like positive parenting techniques, um, which um, are really um, a big proponent of, and an architect I would say is Dr. Laura Moncombe about that. And so I incorporate what you have taught me with what she has taught me Together, and um, I kind of open it up to them, and I say, "What is something that I can do this week that makes you feel loved and valued? What is there something that I have done this week that is the opposite of that?" And really honoring what they have to say, and not responding with reactivity, but with kindness and responsiveness, and saying, "Wow, I did not know," and it has been amazing to learn from these children (laughs) and then to take that into my life because there are some things that they've cued me into that I'm like wow I could be a better friend if I listen to what my children were saying I could be a better employee I could be a better what-have-you and just like really taking that in and we sit and we have this like amazing dialogue and I never thought I could have had that with a 10 year old and an eight year old until Kelsey had like cued me in on that. And when you had talked about that as something that like a couple in a family should do. And I was like, wow, could this really work with my family? And then it has become this awesome thing where instead of, you know, pushing it off and looking for perfection, but we sat down in the first meeting and said like, what are our family values? You know, what do we value? How does it help us inform our decision-making and our choices when it comes to like activities or how we interact with people? And then kind of like doing this like self-evaluation of how we're doing with it. That mindfulness alone, I think, sets a tone and helps dictate our choices throughout the week. And I know for me, it certainly has. Like when I think of like my personal like mantras and stuff, knowing that I'm going to evaluate myself I stop mm-hmm. in like many situations and say, well, am I living up to those things? Am I being the person that now moving from like this huge external, like, what does Kelsey think? What do all these other people think? Which now Kelsey, as my friend, values more as Kelsey, the monster of fencing, mm-hmm. you know? But like, what do my children value at the end of the week, too? Am I accountable to that? Am I living with the grace and dignity that I would like to? It really did shift. And even like with my friendship with you and like, you know, like what you shared with like your mentor and with other people about like what people are valuing. I realize the areas that I really need to work on in terms of like. These are the things that actually matter. These are the things that are really important. And how am I evaluating myself? And how am I working towards those rather than the other goals?
0: So as we wrap up, any advice that you would give to the listener as they might face their own monsters or maybe they self-identify as a monster themselves and they're trying to determine, is this a facade or am I self-driven? Um, That's a fantastic question. Number one is advice for the listener. And then secondarily, how do you decouple what your true motivation is?
1: Yeah, I would say
0: that
1: at the end of the day, you are only responsible to yourself. There's nobody else that sits in your room with you. There's nobody else that determines how well you sleep. Um, Do you feel okay with yourself at the end of the day? Do you need anybody else to validate how you feel? whether you're worthy of love, whether you're intelligent, creative, witty, what have you, as long as you feel okay with that, I think that that is worth the gamble of everything else. As for like advice with like, you know, like children and such like that, um, I would say continuing to foster that because we are living in a time when we've never been more narcissistic driven through social media more competitive living, mm-hmm. all of these kinds of things that are like this kind of like daily barrage of, Awesomeness. look at what I'm doing. I'm only going to show you my highlight reel. I'm not going to show you the pain, the struggle, all of these other things that make me human. Instead, I'm going to show you all those smiling moments. I would say, let people have the emotions that they have mm-hmm. and honor all of those emotions. People find it very odd when they come to my house and they see all these pictures of my children not smiling. They see them at like the full range of emotion and for some people that's really uncomfortable. And like for me, I'm like, but that's who they are. Sometimes they smile, sometimes they cry, just like we do. And I think in honoring that full range and not worrying about what is my public persona, is far more rewarding and like finding monsters like Kelsey and like where we can sit and say, wow, these are the things that we do well and these are the things that we struggle with. These are the things we fail at. These are the things that like, I don't even know where to begin. Thank God I have you in my life because it is so amazing to walk through this journey with you because after all, if we hadn't mastered what's the whole point, right? Mm -hmm. So we need each other, we need to rely on each other And at least for my part, I feel like I've never been at a point where so many um, women in particular have been so loving and so open and so gifting rather than competitive. And I think the more that we do in that way, the better.
0: With that, thank you so much for joining me, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. Now, before you go, there are a few things to take away from this podcast. First, do you identify with the phases I went through where I first started with fear, then I tried to mimic, and then ultimately learned to love those monsters? Or are you somewhere on that journey, somewhere on that spectrum? Second, monsters tend to fall into two categories. Some are self-driven, well-balanced people, while other monsters prop up enviable facades for the world's approval. The fact of the matter is that it's near impossible to know another person's true motivation until we get close enough to really love that person. That requires two things, courage and compassion. I think this maps perfectly to people with high functioning autism because living each day in a world that doesn't understand what it can't see. In our case, it's high-functioning autism. And because it takes courage to keep going and we have personal hardships overcome, we can uniquely be compassionate to the monsters in our own lives. I encourage you guys to stick around for the next episode. That should be dropping shortly. Um, or if you're listening to this in the future, you can just listen to them back to back. I confront a second monster and I make... A surprising realization in the process of confronting a second monster in love. If you guys thought today's podcast and this episode was helpful, I would be so honored if you'd be willing to share it with someone. Maybe share it with your monster. Maybe share it with a parent or a friend. And don't forget to keep hacking.